With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is The Crossover, an NBA show hosted by Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix and Howard Back. It's a whole new level for you and me, Chris, this relationship. Like and subscribe for the best weekly NBA content these two are capable of. What does that mean? Could be the best duo ever. I don't see how you can beat that. Here they are, Chris Mannix and Howard Back. And we are back. A special bonus episode of the Crossover Podcast. Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. Beck, Game 7. Eric Spolster used that famous cliche. The best two words in sports. Game 7. And and look, it is. You know, Celtics-Miami headed for Game 7. Did you think we were going to be here with the Celtics and Heat? Uh, I didn't not think we would be here. How's that for confusing grammatical construction? The, the, this whole series has been so bizarre, Chris, that I, th- that everything was on the table, right? Because of all the injuries and all the inconsistencies and guys are coming and going. And one day it looks like Kyle Lowry should be retiring. And the next day he's, he's putting up, you know, a big performance in the clutch. Like you just, there's nothing about this series that's been predictable. So sure, of course, why not <laughs> that there would be a game seven, just when it looked like the Heat were buried, just when it looked like, in fact, that they were so on fumes that Draymond Green didn't mind kind of getting goaded into saying on live TV the other night, yeah, I think we're going to be facing Boston in the finals. Can we, by the way, settle down Udonis Haslam with the Draymond <laughs> broke the code? Like, what are you talking about? Draymond didn't wasn't parading through Union Square screaming, we want Boston. He was asked like three times by Shaquille O'Neal yes. who they wanted to play. And he said, look, we're going to play Boston. And I don't know why you wouldn't think that if you were Draymond Green. I mean, I don't- you just saw the Celtics dismantle Miami on their home floor. You saw Jimmy Butler dragging that leg around. You saw Kyle Lowry operating at far less than 100%. Tyler Hero wasn't playing. Like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to predict that the Celtics were going to win that series. Now, all credit 
to the Miami Heat, Howard. I, I don't know where this came from. I don't know how, what I don't know what happened on the flight between Miami and Boston. But Jimmy Butler and Kyle Lowry were different players. Let's start with Jimmy Butler at the top here. This was a guy who had three consecutive subpar games. He had 13 points in uh, game five. But after that game, Ime Udoka basically said that Jimmy Butler was not trying to be a scorer. Actually, didn't basically say it. He actually said it. Jimmy Butler was not looking to score was uh, his phrase after game five. All of a sudden, he gets to Boston and it's like that knee completely healed. I don't know if it was the phone call he got from Dwayne Wade. I don't know if it was the pep talk he got from uh, P.J. Tucker and Markeith Morris in that locker room. But that was the Jimmy Butler we saw in the first two rounds of these playoffs. He was elevating and making outside shots. He was getting to his spot and making shots in the paint. He was making shots at the rim. He was clutch every minute of that game. He made that half dunk over Marcus Smart. That was the end one that gave them a three-point lead. He hit that uh, 20-footer for, uh, you know, with about like 30, 40 seconds left with the shot clock winding down that gave them a six-point lead. He was incredible. I mean, people have brought up the LeBron James performance from the 2012 Eastern Conference Finals Game 6, where he scored 45 points at the TD Garden and helped the, the Heat beat the Celtics. This was eerily reminiscent of that because the Heat in that game with uh, in 2012 needed every point that LeBron delivered that night. The Heat in this game needed every point that Jimmy Butler delivered. It was, I mean, Jimmy Butler's played some great games, Howard. I have not seen a better one. That was the best game of Jimmy Butler's career. Probably the most important for a game like that for him to have Jimmy Butler, I've said this for the last several years now while we've watched him bounce from Chicago to Minnesota to, to Philly to Miami, that like he's among the stars in this league and you know, superstar maybe feels like an overplay, over over labeling him, but among that group, wherever you put him, and he's been all NBA a couple of times, I think. He he doesn't fit like anybody else, right? Like everybody else who's in that top, top class who you expect a 40-point near triple-double out of. The LeBrons and the Kevin Durants and, you know, at times, hey, you know, Russell Westbrook, James Harden, whoever, Luka Doncic, the high, the high usage guys. Jimmy doesn't fit any of these, these categories or doesn't fit, he doesn't feel like any of those other guys because he doesn't do this on a consistent basis, not because he can't, but because it's not the way he's built. And I don't know any other way to, to, to put it. It's obvious that he can drop 30 or 40 if necessary because he's done it. This is his fourth 40-point game of this postseason. And you'd be hard-pressed to find, and I'm scrolling to try to find it, I don't think he had a 40-point game all regular season. It's not the way he he didn't. I just scrolled the entire season. It's as if Jimmy Butler lives the cliche of cranking your game up another notch or two in the postseason. Or it's as if he keeps it cranked down a notch or two in the regular season, perhaps, to save himself for the postseason. Whatever it is, when we talk about guys who are gamers, who bring it, who bring it when it matters most, all the cliches you can possibly spit out about rising to the occasion, that's who he is. He has the capability of doing this. He is not a guy who's going to keep posting. He's not going to spend 82 games filling up the box scores and leading statistical races. But he is going to bust his ass on defense every night. He's going to be your team's, 
either lead or one of your top two playmakers. He's going to, you know, defend the hell out of every possession. He's going to do all these other things that lead to winning, right? He's a winning player. That's the thing we can say about him consistently, whether he's got it, whether his shot's falling or not. Jimmy Butler is going to give you maximum effort, everything he's got, and he's going to do everything possible to win. He is a winner at his root. The stats aren't always there, but when he needs them to be, when he when he decides like, okay, we got no Tyler Hero, we are facing elimination. Where else are we going to go? They don't have that guy. I said it on this podcast before, right? They don't have Giannis. They don't have a Kevin Durant. But Jimmy, when he needs to, approximates that. And we saw it. In Game 6, they're going to need it again in Game 7. Can he do that in back-to-back games after everything he's gone through physically? We'll find out. Yeah, that that's my big question. Uh, before we get to that, though, I mean, Eric Spolstra has coached a lot of highly competitive guys in his career, from Shaq to D-Wade to LeBron to Chris Bosh, constellation of stars. He said last night definitively, Jimmy Butler was the most competitive guy in the NBA. Like he just, he has ultimate respect for the fire that burns uh, inside Jimmy Butler. But you raise a good point. Jimmy Butler laid it all out there on the line in game six. Does he have it left in game seven? What does he have left going into game seven? You can say the same thing about Kyle Lowry. Kyle Lowry didn't shoot the ball particularly well. He was four for nine from three point range, but he had 18 points, he had 10 assists. He played 37 minutes. He made big shots in that second half when Miami needed him. Um, He had been equally as bad, if not worse, in the previous games. I wonder if he has anything left. How big a concern is that for you, that Miami may have left it all on the court in Game 6 and doesn't have something left for Game 7? I think that's the biggest concern, right? You're at home. You're at home for a Game 7. You'll have your, you know, obviously the crowd behind you. Um, the Celtics, you've put some doubt in their minds for sure. Uh, game sevens, by the way, history of game sevens in the NBA, only 34 road wins out of 145 game sevens. So that's 23% for the road team. Game sevens in conference finals, there have been 25. The road team has won eight of those. So that's that's 32%, actually higher in the conference finals than in, in uh, all rounds combined. Um, so the, the pressure's clearly on the Celtics, but the Celtics also, I think, have better health. I, I think that's clear. And, and the Heat did expend every ounce they had just to extend the series. So that I mean, that is that is the absolutely the, the biggest concern, Maddox. That if if you know, can Jimmy does Jimmy have to have another forty point type of game where he shoots twenty nine times? Something that you very very rarely see from him. And if it's not that, then where are you going? I don't think you're going to see a thirty point game from Kyle Lowry. I don't know if we're going to get some miracle comeback from Tyler Hero for Game 7. I don't know if Victor Oladipo can summon his Indiana All-Star form for this game. They're a team that has been relying, for the most part, on just being a great ensemble all season with, again, no one dominant force who leads the way night after night. It is you know different guys every night, different combinations of guys. They are the classic, better-than-the-sum-of-their-parts kind of roster. And... In a, in a game seven, I think you feel more secure if you're, say, the Celtics and you know, you know what? 
We're just going to hand it to Jason Tatum. T- Jason, if you got to take 25, 30 shots, go for it. Jalen Brown, you got to take 20, 25 shots, go for it. You're going to ride your best guys, I think, at a time like this. And we know Game 7s, too, can get awfully ugly, right? They 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 slow down, grind, it gets physical, guys are tight, they miss shots, turnovers. Like It can get really muddy, um, which, you know, I think the Heat would say favors them because – that's kind of their style anyway. So where all that balances out, Chris, I, I don't know. I think I think in a case like this, I'm leaning home team, but I'm leaning mm. Heat only uh, or, or with the caveat that I don't know if they've got anything left with you know 48 hours between games. The Celtics sucked in game six. Like they, from top to bottom, they were bad. Jason Tatum had 30 points and shot a really high percentage from the field and from three, but he attempted one shot in the fourth quarter. That's mind-boggling. Jason Tatum should not be attempting fewer shots than Jalen Brown. He should not be attempting the same number of shots as Marcus Smart. He needs to be at 20 shots or more in this Game 7 for the Celtics to have a chance to win. Boston obviously has to keep its turnovers numbers down. That, That wasn't a... That wasn't a huge problem in Game 6 as Miami kicked the ball around as well, but Boston has to keep those turnover numbers low to stay uh, in this game early. Marcus Smart, look, he's had a phenomenal year. Game 6 was old Marcus Smart. That was the guy jacking up nine three-pointers and making one of them. The Celtics don't need that. They need efficient Marcus Smart. Low shooting, high percentage Marcus Smart. Grant Williams... Grant Williams had more fouls than points in this game. Four fouls and two points in game six. And he spent the majority of his time on the floor yelling at the officials. Now, I don't know how close you were watching the officiating, Howard, but this was one of the worst officiated games I've I've ever seen. Like, the crew that did this game uh, was bad. This was a, a stinker for them through and through. But the Celtics continue a troubling practice of continuing to focus on the referees, whether it's Grant Williams, Jason Tatum. uh, They all talk to the referees and chirp at them uh, way too much. They've got to find a way to to play through bad calls and not let it get in their heads and not get rattled by it. All that being said, like if you're Boston, you can look at game six and say, we played awful and we had a chance to win with like one minute left. Like we were right there at the end. You know, Jalen Brown doesn't miss those two free throws, and that game, you know, might have gone a different direction. Jimmy Butler doesn't make that incredible shot with like three seconds on the shot clock with 41 seconds to go, and the Celtics would be in a position to win. So as bad as they were, basically from top to bottom, uh, they had a chance to win a game they had no business uh winning. So they can go to Miami, they've won there twice. Um yeah, they're the, going to be the fresher team, I would think, unless Tyler Hero takes the same concoction that Jimmy Butler and Kyle Lowry took on the way to Boston, uh, and he comes back and plays well. But I, I'm picking the Celtics in Game 7. It, they've, they've disappointed me in the past, but they have shown a mental toughness this year that we haven't seen from them in years past, and I think they're going to play better. I think whether it's Grant Williams, Al Horford, who was equally bad, Robert Williams. Why was Robert Williams not on the floor? in the fourth quarter. I have no idea why that was the case. Robert Williams was a menace um, during his time on the floor in the first three quarters. We know what he does to Bam Adebayo when he's out there. That was a tactical mistake, I think, by Ime Udoka. But I think the Celtics put it together, and they find a way to win this Game 7. 
My question, and you, you know, you, you're based primarily in Boston. I know you've got homes in like half of the 50 states, so, you know, you're on the road a lot. It's more like uh, a third. <laughs> but you're in Boston a lot, and you've seen that team a lot, and you've seen this team up close for years. What is your feeling about, or what your sense of why Tatum, because 9 for 12 looks like a spectacular box score line. 4 for 7 from 3. 8 for 8 from free throw line, 9 for 12, 30 points. You would think this was a fantastic effort aside from the seven turnovers. How is it possible that he only shoots once in the fourth quarter? How is it possible that he has the fourth most shots for his team with a chance to eliminate uh, the other team and go to the finals? Like, how, what, what do you read into either Tatum's performance in that fourth quarter or the way he was defended? What, like, where is the, is, is there any logical explanation for that happening? Well, I think there are a couple things. One, I thought Miami did a really good job of making sure that when Tatum made the catch, he was seeing two defenders. He was seeing the defender that was on him, and he was seeing another defender that was moving towards him. So, in a way, to Tatum's credit, he was able, he was making the right plays. He was moving the ball and and getting it around, and not just kind of forcing up bad shots. At the same time, where Tatum gets into trouble is when he overthinks too much. Like, he needs to just react. Like, he gets that ball, and he sees Max Struess on him. Don't take, like, six dribbles at the top of the key. Go to the basket. Attack the rim. Get to the lane. Get to the free throw line more. Um, he needs to be more proactive than reactive, which I think he was in the second half of uh, of Game 6. But it's it's another... Look, he's responded, Howard, too, in these moments. Celtics down 3-2 going to Game 6 against Milwaukee. Tatum drops 46, so it wouldn't surprise me to see him have another monster game in this series. The other guys I'm more worried about, like Jalen Brown, do we get the good Jalen Brown, who made a lot of shots in the second half of Game 5, or do we get the Jalen Brown that commits a lot of turnovers, uh, plays a little too passively? Uh, you know, I don't know which one are we going to get. Did Al Horford, I, mean, I don't know what went wrong with Al Horford in Game 6. He wasn't anywhere close uh, to himself. And is anybody on that bench going to contribute. It's Grant Williams, Peyton Pritchard, whomever, uh, to that rotation. But uh, it's a coin flip, man. I, and it I, is. And I would just note, we have this extra layer of intrigue uh, courtesy of the NBA. The Heat have now been fined $25,000 for violating bench decorum. Their new favorite thing. Boy, they love the yeah. word decorum, by the way. Yeah, uh, the re referee, Howard, re referees were warning both teams about that. They, they had, like, for most of the game... The, the benches were standing up, or at least in key situations, and they were crowding the corners a lot. And yeah. look, that's, that's, I have can't not, do that. Like, I, have not, I have not seen a fine for the Celtics so far, but the Heat have been, have been fined 25000 and the explanation is that on multiple occasions, several players stood for an extended period in Miami's team bench area, stood away from the team bench, yeah. and were, uh, were on encroaching upon or entering the playing court during live action. In yeah, that six. sounds about right. That sounds about <laughs> right. They, I mean, I think Boston was doing the exact same thing, but Miami must have been more egregious with it. And uh, I do know that, again, I saw the referee warn both benches at one point during the game, so uh, maybe, yeah. they'll, maybe they'll take more care on this one. But it'd be a good, be a good game. Um, you know, it, like the Celtics, if they blow this... This would be bad. This would be among the worst losses in franchise history because they had this game. Game six at home. They're the superior team. The Heat are broken. They were beaten badly in game five. So it's got to come up with something to come away with a win. Uh, before we go, Howard, uh, the Lakers with like the phenomenal news dump of the year, like right before the start of game six, it gets leaked that Darvin Ham is the new head coach. I don't know why they're 
I don't know why it was leaks like that. I mean, I think Darvin Ham personally is a phenomenal coach. Like Darvin Ham would have been my choice all along amongst all the contenders that were out there, including, by the way, Doc Rivers, who the Lakers were sitting on. They were sitting on Quinn Snyder for a while. We know who the finalists were. Terry Stotts was in that mix. Mark Jackson was interviewed. Kenny Atkinson was one of the finalists as well. But the Lakers settle on Darvin Ham. Uh, your thoughts on Big Ham coaching the Lakers? I mean, listen, there were a bunch of good candidates on the board. I don't think there was necessarily a wrong choice there. Maybe some choices are righter than others. I I think where I ultimately land is this, Chris. Darvin Ham, by all accounts, and I don't know Darvin Ham uh, personally. Darvin Ham, by all accounts, great guy, great coach, somebody who has... You know, I, th- I think in league circles, it's, it's felt like he was almost overdue. He spent a lot of time paying his dues as an assistant. He's well-respected, great communication skills, and obviously a great pedigree having been working under Buddenholzer in Milwaukee, winning a championship. And when you see LeBron enthusiastically tweeting about the hire immediately, that's always a good sign. LeBron is, is, the, is the most important person to have on your side is if you're the head coach of a team LeBron James is on. All of that's fine. Uh, ultimately... I don't mean to be overly glib. I do not care who they hired as coach. I don't. And it's not because coaching doesn't matter. It's because coaching isn't fixing anything that dogged them last year. Coaching wasn't their problem. You and I obviously agree on this. You know, you've been very vocal about your support for Frank Vogel. It's... It, it just it just doesn't matter. I mean, I'm happy for Darvin Ham, and I think this will ultimately be a good fit. But none of it makes a bit of difference if they don't fix the roster. So before we get too caught up in, you know, how uh, what, what a great hire this was, or the Lakers, you know, really thinking a little bit more outside the box than we normally think of them thinking, um, and hiring an, an assistant, they, they almost always go with proven commodities. This is rare for them. All that's fine. But again... As long as Russell Westbrook is on that roster, taking up $47 million in cap room, taking up a lot of possessions in which he's going to shoot with low efficiency, not being able to mesh with the other two stars, not being able to carry the team when the other two stars are out, which was also a big part of last year. If anybody thinks that it's going to change just based on the coach, if, if anybody, whether in that organization, which seems to be the case, or anybody else thinks, well, a different coach will figure out a better way to use Westbrook, then you just weren't paying attention. This is not the same Westbrook from five years ago, for one. And 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 all of his worst aspects still are the same. He's still ball dominant. He's still inflexible. I just don't see a way forward for this team. And I don't want to put this all on Westbrook. They're, the whole roster is a mess. But unless that front office can fix that roster quickly, then I, it, it doesn't matter whether it was Darvin Ham, Kenny Atkinson, or, you know, the, the ghost of, of Red Auerbach. It just doesn't matter. I shouldn't yeah, put the ghost uh, of Red Auerbach in L.A., should I? No, probably not. Uh, I agree with everything you said. Westbrook is the dilemma that needs to be solved if you're the Lakers. Uh, Darvin Ham is not a miracle worker. He's not going to turn Russell Westbrook into a sharpshooter before the start of next season. He's not going to make him less ball dominant before the start of next season. I do think Darvin Ham is an excellent coach. I've known him for a long time, going back to his playing days. Um, he is one of the most likable guys in the NBA, but more than that, he's a really sharp guy who has kind of the same Ime Udoka type narrative around him, where he is kind of the ex 
journeyman player who has paid his dues as an assistant coach who learned under one of the best coaches in the NBA. In Udoka's case, it was Greg Popovich. In Darvin Ham's case, it's Mike Budenholzer. Uh, you see the way the comment that was made by Giannis Tentacumpo. He loves him. LeBron James, for whatever it's worth, gave a ringing endorsement of him on social media. I think this was the right choice for the Lakers. Whether it manifests itself in in immediate success, I don't know because I agree with you. Coaching was not this team's problem last year. And I, look, you know, a c- couple things I want to say before we get out of here on this. Uh, you know, I keep reading like how Darvin Ham can hold players accountable. Was that a problem in LA? I mean, I'm reading this quote from Austin Reeves from yesterday, Howard. Like Austin Reeves is out there like throwing strays or hitting Frank Vogel with strays yesterday. He says, quote, holding guys accountable. And then on the other end, if you say miss a sh- couple of shots and this is our one instead of saying you're done, but you encourage them. But there's a fine line in between that. And I'm definitely not a coach. So I wouldn't know how to do those things together. Someone that can really control situations and make good situations on the fly. I don't know what that word salad was. But that was Austin Reeves taking a shot at Frank Vogel saying he wasn't holding players accountable the right way. Um, This team won a championship in 2020. If Anthony Davis doesn't go down in the first round, they're probably at least in the finals in 2021. And the litany of injuries that happened last year to AD and LeBron, plus the Westbrook trade that blew up the roster and put a player that was the ultimate square peg into a round hole type of team... That wasn't Frank Vogel's fault either. So I'm getting a little, I'm a little over, you know, these these Frank Vogel critiques long after he's gone. He was not the problem with that team. And as good as Darvin Ham is going to be, I really believe he's going to be a great coach. That's a roster problem in LA. Period. Full stop. End of story. The Lakers have a roster problem, not a head coaching problem. I lose you there. Hello, hello. Now I got you. You you, oh. you were breaking up through that whole thing, so it's uh, it's fine. Like, but I know I, 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 I heard I, I heard ended, enough. I ended it with Lakers have a roster problem, not a coach problem. So give me give me one final thought, okay. and we'll we'll wrap it. Yep. All right. Three, two, one. Yeah. Listen, that's it. And it, the thing is, and I, you know. This is not to say that Frank Vogel was completely without blame. I'm sure there are there are critiques, especially from within the locker room, that might be valid. And maybe he wasn't holding guys accountable enough. Guess what? It's really hard to hold Russell Westbrook to, to account, no matter who you are. Ask anybody who's coached him. But if Frank Vogel had failed with the same roster, if they had never made the trade, if they still had Contavious Caldwell-Pope and Kyle Kuzma and Montrezl Harrell and Alex Caruso, by the way, if it had been a group that had people who could defend and who could make shots and who could run the offense without dominating the offense, if you had the depth that you had before and they'd still crashed and burned, I would still say, well, LeBron being out six weeks and AD missing a bunch of games had a lot to do with it. But okay, at least he had the tools to work with. That roster was and is a disaster. So, you know, this is not just to say, I, 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 you know, what reliving last season or relitigating last season is, is kind of pointless at this, at this stage. What the Lakers need going forward, if they're going to not waste the twilight of LeBron James's career, is to 
fix this roster. I don't know how they get there still, Mannix. They don't have a lot of tools to do it. They seem, by all accounts, by all messages being sent through the media, to be either afraid of trying to move Westbrook, opposed to moving Westbrook, or resigned to the fact that it will be almost impossible to move Westbrook. It still needs to be the top priority because I just don't see how you unclog this thing without doing that. And, you know, aside from that, they're just to have very limited opportunities uh, or, or avenues to get the kind of, of, of defenders and shooters that they need and that they lost when they made the Westbrook trade in the first place. So um, Darvin Ham, good hire. Rob Palinka and his staff, you're still like on, on the clock basically at this point about uh, everything else. Let's see what they do in the draft in another month. Let's see what they do in free agency. But they have a long way to go to reviving this thing. I agree. I agree. All right, Howard, I am off to Miami uh, joining my media brethren who were none too pleased uh, that this series <laughs> is going to a game set. If you could have been sitting on that press row in Boston to look at the faces of uh, Brian Windhorst and Nick Friedel and our friend Tim Bontemps and everybody else has been following this series from start to finish, uh, not pleased that they weren't getting a couple of days off before the start of the finals. I always I always try to explain to, to fans, we have no rooting interest in this business other than self-interest. Yes. And that, and that means we want every series to end as soon as possible. If there's an elimination game, we're looking for the elimination. It doesn't matter who's up. We just want it to end so we can move on. And especially at a time like now, because those guys are all going to probably be covering the finals and you mm-hmm. want some breathing room in between series. So... Uh, the, the team you're rooting for is whoever's up <laughs> and, and whoever will get it done fastest. So, uh, regardless, uh, I, I will see you soon because the finals will be starting, um, in less than a week. And, uh, I will see you along the way. June 2nd, one way or the other. Poor Brian Winters looked like someone shot his dog when that final <laughs> buzzer sounded out there. Howard, we will see you in California. Always a pleasure, my friend. 